Are you enjoying our service today? Are you glad you're here on the 4th of July? <laughs> we appreciate you all being here. And uh, is Jake in here right now, Jake Wookie? Where is he? Wow, you are hard to see back there, man. All right, Jake, I think this is the last time you're going to be in church before you head off to the Olympics, right? So stand up, Jake, so we can see you. We want you to know we are going to be rooting for you. We are going to be praying for you. And uh, I, guess, I guess next weekend you're here but working all weekend. Then you take off and you're in the training center in San Diego and then off to Tokyo. So exciting stuff. Our prayers will be with you. Good job, Jake. We're, we're excited to watch it. Uh, we're celebrating the 4th of July and we're just appreciative of our country. And boy, you don't hear a lot of that anymore. And uh, we appreciate our forefathers, our founding fathers, who paid a price for our freedom. You know, anytime there's freedom, somebody's paid a price for that, right? And our founding fathers, often that was, that was their livelihood, I think, for all of them, and often their blood. And uh, we've talked about earlier in the service how since we've been a nation, people from all over the world want to come here. And I, I've seen that all over the world. Uh, you know, I've been to maybe 17 or so countries, and, and you just see how, how people yearn for the freedom that we have. And when we are here and have it, we sort of take it for granted. And uh, why do they want to come? Freedom. Freedom is why they want to come. And, and, or they might say to pursue the American dream. But I got to tell you, I think there's been a shift in our culture. I think the original American dream that our country was sort of founded on, that was reflected in our Constitution, I think that's been a little bit replaced, somewhat replaced. It's been twisted into a new American dream where I think people view that today and it's all about wealth and economics and opportunity. But originally, the original American dream was founded, that our country was founded on, was all about being able to worship God in freedom. And I'll get back to that in a little bit. We're in a series in James, and we call it Faith That Walks. And all through this short book of the Bible, James is telling us that if we have true faith, real Christian faith, it will show up in our lives. It won't just be something we say or even something we merely believe. It will come out of our lives. It'll show up in the way we live, and it'll show up in how we pursue our goals and dreams. Last week, we were in James chapter 4, and we talked about how James contrasted earthly wisdom or worldly wisdom with godly wisdom or wisdom from above. And we learned how, above all, wisdom from above, godly wisdom, it brings humility to us because we recognize who God is. But worldly wisdom, on the other hand, creates an attitude of self-sufficiency. I can do it. It's all me. Or entitlement. 
you owe me. And, uh, and planning a life like that, a lot of times you're planning life in total disregard of God. And James confronts this attitude, and that's where we're going to start in James chapter 4, beginning with verse four, I'm sorry, 13. And so if there's a problem in the way we pursue our hopes, our dreams, or the American dream, the way we pursue our goals, well, then what is it? What's the problem? And that's what we're going to talk about first. Again, verse 13. Now, James starts this. It's a new section, and we know that because he starts with some unusual wording. It's kind of strong in the original language. It'd be like if, if somebody was talking to you and they said, look, look here, and then continued. That's what he does. Verse, verse 13, it says it this way. Now, he says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. And he's doing this, we know, in a condemning way. And the question we might ask is, whoa, 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 what's James condemning here? Surely it's not planning. That's kind of what it sounds like. But we know from Proverbs, for example, that, that making plans it is a wise thing to do. We know from Jesus, for example, that not making plans is foolish. And he tells stories like a guy who builds a tower, but he only gets it half done, runs out of money because he didn't plan a budget. Or a king who goes out to war and he's going to face this other army, but before he gets there, he realizes he's outmatched. He doesn't have a big enough army. And so he says, J Jesus is telling us, hey, it's foolish not to make plans. So, and we know there's nothing wrong with planning for business. There's nothing wrong with making a profit. It kind of goes back to Christian economics 101 that says you are not entitled to the labor or the resources of other people. You know, we should work for what we have. And making a profit that, that's not a bad thing. That allows people to hire other people. It gives them the opportunity to provide for their families. So what's James condemning here? What's he saying? Well, later on when we get to it, verse 16, we're going to see that because he uses a phrase. He says, you boast in your arrogance. And here James is describing a businessman who's self-assured, and he, he's confident. He assumes his life is in his control. No thoughts given to dependence on God or the uncertainty of life. You see, James doesn't say planning is immoral. He's saying presumption is immoral. Planning for the future is wise, not evil. But planning without consulting or acknowledging God is arrogant. And so how do you know? Well, a couple, two quick questions would be, think about your plans, your goals, your future. Do your deepest plans involve God? When you're thinking about where you want to be someday and the path to get there, are you running that through the grid of God as your Savior? And then it's not only just do your plans reflect that, do they involve God, but it's also is your deepest confidence in 
something other than God. Well, I'm going to be able to do this because I've got some money stashed away or because I'm going to get this education. You know, where are you getting your confidence from? Boasting in our own plans or boasting in our own wisdom is foolish and wrong. I mean, it's foolish to think, hey, I've planned well, and because I've planned so well, I'm in control of what happens. That kind of thinking displays what some people call life control illusion. Or it's very similar to what psychologists control, what psychologists call the illusion of control. The illusion, the thinking that if I, if I work hard enough, if I plan enough, if I'm diligent enough, if I strategize enough, that I can control the outcome. It's an illusion of control, and it's super relevant to us because maybe more than any other culture in the world, our culture right here, we are more into the illusion of control than any other culture. I mean, we're all about that. That's how we automatically think. And by the way, that's the opposite of a heart that thinks this way. Hey, I'm going to work hard. I'm going to be diligent. I'm going to persevere. I'm going to endure. I'm going to take care of my responsibility. But I know ultimately the outcome will will involve forces that are beyond my control. And by the way, a heart that would continue to say, and if I do have success, and if things do go well, I will know it's because of God's blessing, and I will be grateful and know it's a gift from God. You see, success always involves forces beyond our control. Some of you say, no, no, hey, you don't understand. I just got my MBA. Well, how, how, how would you do it getting your MBA if you were born on a mountainside in a yurt in Mongolia? Probably wouldn't work out so well, right? There's always forces at play that we didn't have anything to do with. That's what James is reminding us of. That's why people want to come to America. But, but it's a shift because the original American dream was come and have freedom to worship God without any interference. And now it's been twisted into a new American dream of pursuing wealth or entitlement without God. Worldly wisdom always displays a total disregard for God. The twisted American dream pursues a future with no thought of God. It's not the way our founders were, not most of them. So if the problem is ignoring God and the illusion of control, well, why is that a problem? Why is that a problem for us? Well, there's three reasons that James leads us to here. First of all, we presume to know the future. That's one of the problems. We think we know what's going to happen. Thinking you know what will happen leads to overconfidence. Anybody 
ever been confident in an outcome? You thought this was going to happen, and then it didn't happen? A lot of times, it's very easy for us to be overconfident in what's going to happen, and then that doesn't happen. You can, a lot of people turn to the stock market. And when you're investing in the stock market, a lot of times people will say, hey, well, we have this strategy, we have this system, and it, it, we don't know what, what the performance will be, but you can't lose any money. Have you ever heard something like that? And then what inevitably happens? Something happens and it goes down and you lose and you're like, what happened? And then somebody's saying, well, that's never happened before. So we didn't see that coming because that never has happened before. So you can't count that against us. Yeah, but things that have never happened before have happened before. And they will keep on happening. That's the point. We don't really know the future. We assume we know enough about the future to manage risk, but it's not always true. Our trust should be in God, not some well-thought-out plan. Or you disregard that your life is a gift. Why, Why is it a problem for us? because we start disregarding the fact that life is a gift. Here's how he says it in the next verse. Yet you don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. He's saying, your life is just a mist. It's a vapor. It's temporary. It's like your breath on a cold day. I mean, it's there and it's gone. Our life on earth is short, is what he's trying to remind us of. And so don't ignore God and eternity while we're making plans for tomorrow in our life that's just a vapor. He continues in verse 15, he says, instead you ought to say, as you're making these plans, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. And this sort of expresses God's sovereign control over everything that's going on around you. It's why a lot of Christians, well, when they make plans, will throw in a phrase at the end, Lord willing. Anybody ever hear somebody say that? Hey, this and this and this, Lord willing. That's just acknowledging that. That's not to say we always have to say the phrase. I mean, Paul didn't always say the phrase when he talked about his plans. But what we should, whether we say the phrase or not, we should always have this inner attitude inside of us that acknowledges God's sovereignty. Where we evaluate our plans based on God's standards and God's goals and what God would want for our life, what God thinks about what we're doing. Why is it a problem for us? Because this kind of thinking that we're in control, it elevates ourselves above God. We put our place in his place. We put ourselves in his place. A lot of times people come, we'll, we'll talk to people about God and they'll come down to this question. It'll be, hey, are we free? Can we make any choice we want to make? Can I control this buzzing sound in this room? No, you know. <laughs> are, are we free and we can do anything? Or is everything predetermined? It's already 
going to work out one way or the other, and that's been preordained, it's predetermined, and that's the way it's going to be. And so we think it's either or, either God's in control and everything that happens is part of the plan, or our choices matter. We think either or, and here's how it plays out. You hear, it, it progresses to this point. You either think nothing I do matters, because what God's going to do, God's going to do, so nothing I do matters, and then that ends up leading to passiveness or indifference. Or you buy into the life control illusion. And when you buy into that, you're saying, I can do it. I can make my future whatever I want it to be. I can handle this. But with that, it brings pressure. Why does thinking, I can do it, it's all me, why is that life and control illusion, why does that bring pressure? Because you start realizing that if it's all mapped out and it's all about you, that as you go through life, if you make one misstep, if you make one wrong choice, it can derail you from your plan and you'll never get to your hopes and dreams. That's the problem. That brings in that kind of pressure. Why is that pressure? Why do, we, why do we feel that pressure? Because we're putting ourselves in the place of God and we're not qualified for the job. We can't handle that kind of pressure. That's the problem. We think either or, but God says both and God says it's not either or. The whole Bible's telling us it's not either or. It's both and. It's critical to understand now the Bible's talking about both and for us to live a life of wisdom. Especially true for us here in the West. Because in other parts of the world, they don't have this much of a conflict with this. We can see this in mental health. For example, do you realize in the West, Western nations have a much higher problem in dealing with suffering. They deal with suffering less effectively than people from other parts of the world. And here's why. Because in the West, we feel that we can control outcome, that we can control our life. And so when something bad happens, suffering is brought into our life, then we always tend to think that that's somebody else's fault. That, oh, I was in control, but then this person did that. And And if that doesn't work so well that you can't point to somebody whose fault it is, then we point at God and say it's your fault, God. because we're used to controlling our lives. But people in other parts of the country, they're not, they don't think they're in control of their life. They realize they're caught up in forces bigger than them, so they, they take suffering in stride much better than we do. It's and both. God infallibly works out his sovereign will every day, every time, and our choices do matter. And unless you have both these truths together, you can't live a wise life. 
Here's how James continues. Next verse is verse 16. He says, but as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does it not, to him it's sin. You see, the mindset of pride is opposite than one of faith. And so it's, it's a problem, and that's why it's a problem. Well, what can make it worse? Well, something that we experience a lot can make it worse, and that is success. Pursuing life without God leads to pride, and then if we have success, it's all worse because we think, I did it. It's all me. I pulled it off. And then that kind of an attitude, well, we can see it in people's lives. We can see it in how people think of their money, for example. Think about it. If you think your success is all you, and it's just all you, it's all me, I did it, and I don't understand these other people, then anything that you accumulate, any money that you make, you hold on to that in sort of a prideful way very tightly. But on the other hand, if you think your success is due to God's goodness and his blessing and God's generosity, then all of a sudden the money that you make, you don't hang on to that as tightly because you realize it's a gift from God. You recognize that. Wealth is not evil, but it comes with temptations. Success without acknowledging God makes things worse. Pride in our success then brings greed and self-indulgence, which James is going to talk about. And then that leads to judgment. We've crossed into chapter 5, and here's what it says next. Again, another strong statement. He says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It's in the last days that you've stored up your treasure. What's amazing, what, what we always have to remind ourselves, and I do this a lot, is when we read a passage, you rich people, hey, you rich people, You know, a lot of us, we read that and go, oh, man, I thought he was talking about me. Nice, you know. Oh, the rich people. But actually, we are the rich people in this world, right? If you're here and you had transportation to get here, then you're in the top five percentage points of rich people. You're top five percent richest people in the world. Maybe the top 4% of the richest people in the world. If you have a house that, that's available to you, well, that might bump you up to four or three. If you own a house, well, you're up to three or maybe the top 2% richest people in the world. Not richest in America, not saying that at all. In the world where most people live on $2 a day. And we, we read passages like this and go, yeah, yeah, stick it to him, James. You know, yeah, James, go get that rich guy. <laughs> it's us. 
And he talks about judgment on rich people, that they'll, they'll have a, a fiery torment. Man, that seems kind of extreme. Yeah, that's exactly what Jesus said too in Luke 16, right? And we think, whoa, fiery torment, wow. That does not jive with our culture today. Churches don't even talk about that anymore. That God's saying there is a hell that's a real place of separation and torment, separation from God, that that really exists. And probably in 80% of churches in America, you will never hear that. That doesn't seem to jive with a loving God. Right, because God is not only loving. God is also righteous and just. And God says there's right and wrong. And God also says we're all wrong. We've all done wrong. God's done nothing but good for us, and we've all done wrong. God gave us life. God gave us freedom so that we can have a free relationship with him. But we've all used that freedom to rebel against him. We've all done wrong. We've all sinned. And because of that, we all deserve this judgment that James is talking about the rich man heading to. All of us, rich or poor. And then we think, ah, that can't be right. That judgment's too harsh. I was sharing with the last service this, you know, and I've shared this before, some of you might remember. I can, when my kids were young, I could lie to my daughter, hey, sweetie, after church we're going to get ice cream. And then something comes up and we don't get ice cream. And I lied to her. And What's going to happen? She's just going to be sad or mad, and I probably won't even allow her to be mad. You know, that's the way that'll go. But nothing happens to me, right? But if I lied to Pam, I could be sleeping on the couch, right? (laughs) And if I lied to my boss, I could get fired, right? And if I lie to the government, I could be thrown in jail unless I'm related to somebody in the White House. You know, it it could just be, it it could be bad. The point is, the sin is always the same, right? That sin is the same. The sin didn't change, it was just a lie. What changed? Who the lie was against, who the sin was against. You see, all of our sin is against a righteous, mighty God who gave us life and freedom. And so the consequences are way more severe than we think they would be. It's eternity separated from God. But the amazing thing is God is love, and he does love us anyway, in spite of our sin. And so through great sacrifice and paying the price for our freedom, he allows his one and only son, Jesus, to die on the cross in order to be able to offer us forgiveness as a gift through faith in Christ alone. And we can either accept that gift or we can do it things our way and live under the life control 
illusion. And when we do that, we're going to have an illusion about what eternity is going to be like, and we're going to be wrong. That's the way it goes. Don't let wealth make you independent from God, because one day it'll be worthless, and you'll be judged. Success and wealth can also bring callousness toward people. That's what James talks about next in verse 4. He says, Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you, and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord Sabaoth. And this Lord Sabaoth, some some translations will have almighty. It just expresses power, majesty, transcendence of God. But what is he saying there? He's saying, hey, success and wealth can bring greed, and it can cause us to be unfair to other people and uncaring toward other people or people who work for you. But withholding what you owe others is always a sin, is what he's reminding us. Wealth can lead to pride and greed. Wealth can also lead to self-indulgence. That's what he talks about next in verse 5. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. And I got to tell you, I read something like this, and I think that applies to all of us. We live in luxury. And, and, and I know we're sitting here going, luxury, hey, Kevin, you haven't been to my house. I, I don't live in luxury. Well, if, if you've been in a, a hut in the Congo, you'd come back thinking you live in luxury. It's all perspective, right? We live in luxury. He's saying, hey, enjoying the gift without acknowledging the giver is idolatry. Enjoying the gift that God's given us, the gifts, without acknowledging the giver, that is idolatry. Don't allow the things of this world to be the focus of your life because there's another world coming that will last for eternity. Be careful how we pursue our future, our goals, our dreams. So, well, how do we know? How do we know if we're pursuing sort of the twisted version of the American dream or that we're pursuing what God would want us to, the original American dream, where we just want to worship God, that we want to keep Him the center of our life. How do you know? Well, first of all, this whole book is telling us, you know, one question you can ask yourself, there's four questions here. One, to start off with, do you live in humble gratitude to God for everything you have? Are you grateful to God that you live in the freest country in the world? You didn't do that. God placed you here. Are you grateful? And by the way, it's the freest country in the world because the founding fathers, most of them, not all of them, most of them put God first. That's why we have this freedom. And then the next three questions to figure out, you know, how, how we 
respond in this way? Where are we at? Are we pursuing the right dream? All has to do when things don't go well. When you make plans and then there's a kink in the plan that you didn't expect. You know what I'm talking about? Happens all the time, right? It, it happens every day for me. How, you guys ever lay out your day and you're going to get these six things done or eight or ten or whatever it is, and then, man, you're on number two and everything goes haywire. Are you with me? How do you respond when there's kinks to your plan? Three questions. First of all, are you patient when interruptions, when you get derailed on, on your plans? Are you patient? In the next couple of verses, seven and eight, James reminds us that the Lord's coming back and to be patient, and then he uses the illustration of a farmer who works his tail off, plows the land, plants the land, but then he's just gotta sit back and realize that even though he's put in all this hard work, that the actual outcome is due to forces beyond his control, and he has to just wait it out and see if a harvest comes. Patiently waits. How patient are you when things don't go well? Patience is not, I don't mean passive resignation to whatever fate awaits you. That's not the patience that the Bible's talking about, but an attitude of self-restraint that enables you to refrain from hasty reactions when things don't go well. Hey, I didn't plan on doing this. Hey, this didn't go right. And then how you react right then will tell you which dream you're pursuing. Because a lot of times you start lashing out to others, which is the next question. Third, do you blame others? That's what verse 9 talks about. James telling us, hey, don't complain against other people because there's a judge, the same judge, over all of us. Don't lash out, don't blame, don't complain about, oh, I would have got this done, but if it wasn't for this and this and this. You know what happened? Let me just tell you this. Recently, I was all set to do something, and I thought I had it all squared away in my mind, and then it all played out, and it was a train wreck. And I'm going, wow, that did not go well, and I had planned this with some other people. And when I say recently, I mean like an hour ago. And so that didn't go the way, and then so afterwards, I'm like, hey, what happened there? How did we have the train wreck? What happened? And then somebody came up to me, and they showed me an email that they had sent me that had some details that I didn't notice. So then I felt like, because everybody knew that didn't go right, I had to go back and probably to about 20 people and say, hey, that didn't go right, and guess what? That was all my fault. I'm sorry. Again, this just happened. Stuff like this happens all the time, right? I, gotta, I have to go say, hey, I'm sorry. That didn't, that didn't work out well for you. Uh, that's my fault. Happens all the time. Don't blame others. Are you following godly examples? In verses 10 and 11, the next two verses, James then says, hey, what about these examples? And he cites two. He says, first of all, the Old Testament prophets, remember those guys? And they all remembered those guys. They were speaking for God, God's people, speaking for God to God's people, and God's people mistreated them. They didn't do anything wrong, but they suffered. 
And they kept being faithful to God. And then James throws out Job. He says, remember Job? Job was the guy who was super faithful to God, maybe the most faithful person to God living at his time, and then he loses everything. His family, his wealth, his health, he loses it all. And, and he's wondering what is going on, but he remains faithful. And in the end, God restores. God restores him because he was faithful under tremendous testing. What's, what's James saying here? Controlling your life, it's an illusion. We are not in control. We plan, we're diligent, we work hard, but we're not in control. But you know what? There's a God in heaven who created you and who loves you, even in spite of our rebellion against him. And he's created a way for us to be with him forever. Trust him. Trust, trust God. Let's stand together for prayer. Father God in heaven, we thank you for loving us. God, we thank you for the country that we live in. God, we thank you for the wealth that, that isn't even always a good thing if we because we can misuse it. God, thanks for the freedom. God, but most of all, we thank you for the freedom that you give us spiritually at great cost to you that you paid in blood through the death of your son, the greatest gift. And God, help us acknowledge your sovereignty that we're responsible, that we need to take action that we need to be diligent, but ultimately you're sovereign and our choices matter. In Jesus' name, amen.